Avatar takes place 150 some years into our future. Our real physics apply. So that meant that when someone was swimming, James Cameron wanted them swimming. It needed to look like they were really swimming versus someone sitting behind a computer thinking, this is what swimming looks like. It really is movie wizardry. It's magical <laughs> how it all happens, but it just lends to the best experience for the viewer because it looks real. What the underwater people diving? They were underwater diving. This isn't Aquaman. We're not hanging on strings with fans in our hair thinking we're underwater. So what you see is what you get. I'm Peter McCulley. Kirk Kroc of Vancouver Island has spent the last five and a half years working with James Cameron on Avatar 2, The Way of Water, teaching actors free diving. We managed to catch up to him on dry land. Kirk Kroc, when Today in BC continues. Why spend hours searching dealerships, comparing makes and models? Find the best of BC's inventory in one place, todaysdrive.com. You'll have access to inventory across BC, where you can easily find a vehicle that fits your needs and gets you where you need to go in comfort. Get in the driver's seat. Don't miss out on the many options we have available for you. Powered by Black Press Media, todaysdrive.com connects you with exclusive new and used car deals. Thanks for making time for us in your busy schedule, Kirk. It's great to be here. How did a kid from the prairies become fascinated with life underwater? What got you interested in diving? Yeah, it's funny. Everyone wants to know that, right? When I explain where I'm from, Saskatchewan, I always explain it to my American friends. It's the land where you watch your dog run away for three days. So how could I, <laughs> how could I get in the water? Interestingly, just growing up with my parents, they were very much water people. We had a sailboat when I was growing up in the northern half of the province is really Canadian Shield and all these lakes. So I grew up a water rat at the lakes, a swim instructor, a lifeguard. And actually, when I was 14, I got scuba lessons for my birthday. Previous to that, I was a big time swimmer and snorkeler and skin diver. I just had this passion for it. And it's funny because when I was in grade 10, I knew that I would have a business at an early age, and I knew it would be aquatics-based. No idea it was going to lead into scuba diving, eventually free diving, and then working on Avatar with James Cameron. You mentioned your parents had given you scuba lessons, so they must have been very supportive when you showed that you had some interest in the water. Absolutely. In fact... The deal was my first year of education after graduating high school would be paid for. And if I did good, then maybe they'd consider funding year two and three. And I wanted to spend one year's worth of my education on a four-month diving program so I could be a scuba diving instructor in the prairies of all the places. <laughs> they said, are you sure this is what you want to do? I just ran with it and made it my career because it's my passion. It's what I love to do. Growing up, I watched a lot of Jacques Cousteau on television and at one time got to meet his son and tour the Calypso when I was out on the East Coast. Was there any one person that influenced you or mentored you? I wouldn't say one person. It's funny, back home when I was lifeguarding, I lifeguarded at this all-girls school. Sister Jean Lear was the, was the manager of the pool and she just really instilled a work ethic and just a passion for the water. If I think back to a person that kind of professionally grounded me, it was when I was a young lifeguard still working my way through high school. 
But other than that, it's really a culmination of a lot of different things. People like Jacques Cousteau or James Cameron or Wes Skiles, all of these different amazing underwater adventurers and explorers. And for me, it was just the freedom of being underwater, moving in three dimensions, basically flying. That really just stoked my passions for it. I understand you became interested in free diving, which is what you were teaching the actors on the set of Avatar, while you were living in the Cayman Islands. And I think you were a teenager living in the Cayman Islands. I've worked there twice. So 89, 90, I was just 20 when I first worked there. Then I bought a dive shop back home in Saskatoon. And then after five years, I sold that to my partner and eventually ended up moving back to the Cayman Islands after about a year and a half in Vancouver, where I was specializing in technical diving, like deep decompression mixed gas diving. When I moved back to Cayman, and this would have been in early 96, I started my second company called Dive Tech, and we specialized in technical diving. But on my days off, I did free diving. And what ended up happening is by 97, we ended up doing some support work using our deep technical scuba diving to support some free divers, which is something I was still doing and engaging in my day off. And eventually that just started to take over. And what ended up happening is I ended up getting into the position of training two people to two national and then two world records while in the Cayman Islands. So by the time I left in December of 99, really I had become a full-time practicing and professionally working freediver. By January of 2000, that's when I started my company, Performance Freediving International. Was that company the company that was hired to train Navy SEALs and other military groups on diving techniques? Yeah. Initially, it was around lending the experience that I had developed with my friend Brett Lemaster, who I trained to a national and then a world record, and then also the experience I had with Tanya Streeter, who I trained to a national and world record. We were just going out to different spearfishing clubs or just different diving organizations and lending what we learned. But what I was still doing is focusing on training free divers, specifically athletes at national and world records. So ultimately ended up training seven athletes to 23 world records, a dozen and more athletes to hundreds of national records. Eventually that program started to evolve to teach instructors to teach my system. And then we moved into a form of breath holding that was really about breath hold survival. That started with Ian Walsh, who was a big wave surfer sponsored by Red Bull. Then that led into working with special operations group. Now I work with, I think it's 11 different special operations groups from three different countries. So Naval Special Warfare, MarOps, Air Force PJ, Special Boat Service, Canada's JTF2. So a number of groups like that, which is all about ostensibly if their equipment packs it in during operations, going to the surface is even more deadly at times because that's where the enemy's at. So we have to train them to work under pressure and problem solve. And what specifically were you teaching Tiger Woods? A week after he won the Masters, and he had done this incredible chip that hit and then rolled down, and the Nike symbol sat there for five full seconds before it just went into the hole. And a week later, he's in the Cayman Islands, and he was really getting into spearfishing at that time. And the equipment he was buying, some friends of mine had owned the company, and they said, listen, if you're getting into spearfishing and getting all this stuff, you got to know how to do it first off safely, and then know how to do the technique of it to get better bottom times and longer and that sort of thing. So ultimately, him and his wife and three of his crew ended up coming and taking a regular program with us, which was interesting because I walked into the classroom. We were the last people to arrive. 
I just picked them up at the dock off their private boat. And then here I walk in with Tiger Woods and everyone's jaw just drops because the world's greatest athlete just was going to spend four days with them. Avatar was not the first movie that you've worked on. I understand you worked with Tom Cruise, who's well known for doing his own stunts. And I believe it was one of his Mission Impossible movies. Yeah, it was Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. I was actually at a trade show and I got this email and I recognized the producer from, I think it was Bad Robot at the time. And the email said, give me a call. I need to talk to you quick. And so I called him and he said, listen, normally there'd be tons of NDAs, but we don't have time. It's Tom Cruise. It's Mission Impossible. We needed you here a month ago. And so what's funny is four days or five days later, Mandy was waking me up saying, okay, they want you on a noon flight. And I was like, what? So next day I flew out and I ended up spending two and a half months in the UK training him for the in-water scene for that. He had this idea of this really big, long, four minute long breath hold that wouldn't have any cuts, but ultimately they had to cut it down just so it kept the audience engaged. He did some really amazing breath holds. In fact, just using air, he managed to do a breath hold of six and a half minutes. But then when we would shoot day to day for a 12-hour shooting day, we would actually employ something I've been developing called technical free diving, where we would use an oxygenated mixture. And we typically use about a 50% breathing mixture of oxygen just to help reduce any potential of hypoxia or any problems that way. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. Is that six and a half minutes of sitting on the bottom or is that six and a half minutes of floundering about? Yeah, that's a really smart question because ultimately that six and a half minutes is just relaxed. It was a dry breath hold. It was using air and just laying down. What we would call that, or if we had did it face down in the water, just floating there motionless, we'd call that static apnea. When we start working, when we're doing dynamic movements, when you're shooting a scene, your metabolic rate rises. And so then your potential starts to be decreased. I can take basically half of what your static time could be. And that's what you could do if you're moderating your workload. So then when we use these oxygenated mixtures, then that helps us get it back. Certainly worked because I remember watching the scene from that movie a couple of times and I could feel my blood pressure going up and my angst was increasing. It was, it was uncomfortable watching that scene, actually. And what was neat is the part where he blacks out, he's trying to open up the hatch and he ends up blacking out. Chris McQuarrie, the director, he called me up behind the monitor with him. And so I got to direct him through that portion of the scene, the blackout, and to try and make it as realistic as possible. My whole thing when I work on a movie and where free diving or diving is going to be portrayed, I'm trying to make sure that the professional divers in the audience who are watching it go, yeah, that's the way it really looks. <laughs> and if they don't give the, oh, give me a break, then I know that the audience will buy into it uh, as well. And that's been the most amazing thing working with James Cameron is it's about the realism that he wanted to bring to Avatar. So that's why we did wet for wet shooting in water, doing real breath holds, because the real physics of the world has to come through. Yeah, there was working with Tom Cruise, and then eventually I worked with Mar Margot Robbie on Suicide Squad before moving on to Avatar. I sense there's a pretty good story here. You filled in as a stunt double for Batman somewhere along the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I was on Suicide Squad. The first day I got there, they were shooting nights. I got with the second unit director, I got with the head of stunts and Margot Robbie's stunt double. Ingrid was her name. They just wanted like a quick little session summary of what I'm going to teach them. Ultimately, just in a little classroom session, 
I think I got them to just a dry breath hold of four minutes over the course of like half hour, 45 minutes. I could see the second unit director and the head of stunts. They were like talking away. (laughs) And eventually he said, so Kirk, do you know anyone with your jawline, great free diver? That's about six, three. And I said, I'll come back with some ideas for you tomorrow, not knowing what they were talking about. And so the next day I showed them a bunch of pictures of some good free diving friends and instructors of mine. And they were like, no. And they said, Hey, how would you like to do a stunt? And I was like, Oh, sure. Yeah. What do you need? And at this time, I didn't know Batman. Not even most of the crew knew Batman was going to be in Suicide Squad at that time. They said, how'd you like to play Batman? I was like, are you kidding me? I'll go out back alley and get leg extensions to if you need me to be 6'3". It was pretty cool. The first day I got pulled aside to go to the special door that only special access people could go into. And that's where the Batman costume was. And I got to try it on looking in the mirror, all muscled up in the suit and everything was pretty cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Got to train Margot Robbie for that and then become Batman underwater. How did you fall in with James Cameron? That's that's actually another interesting story. So I was at uh, Vancouver International. I'd already gone through customs. I was waiting for my flight. I was getting a coffee at Starbucks. And I saw him and an entourage walk by and I thought, oh my God, I got to go meet him. This guy's an idol. There's two defining movies in my life. Star Wars as a young kid, the original Star Wars. I had the blankets and the models and the posters. My, <laughs> we all did. I, I was a Star Wars geek, yeah. And then the next one was The Abyss, the movie ah, about yes. underwater oil rig workers in a habitat that James Cameron produced. And that became a really defining movie for me in that I wanted to get deep. I wanted to stay as long, whether it was technical diving and being at 500 feet on mixed gases decompressing for six and a half hours or driving a scooter breath hold to 115 meters. I just sought out the capability of what humanity is possible or has the potential for. So I'm waiting for my coffee and finally it comes and then I go to try and find him and he's gone. I was like, ah, damn, missed my chance. As I get on my flight to LA, sure enough, who's in seat 1A and B, but Jim (laughs) and his wife, Susie. So I go back to my seat and I pulled out a business card and on the back of it, I did a little Twitter resume and I did little bullet points, seven athletes, 23 world records, worked on the Cove, the documentary, special operations groups, all these different things. And it took me about half the flight to get my courage up. And so I walked up and I held out the card and I said, nothing ventured, nothing gained. My name's Kirk. I'm a free diver. And before I could say anything else, he was like, how long can you hold your breath? And for the next 15 minutes, we talked free diving and breath holding and scooters and the cove and underwater filming until I eventually got kicked back to steerage class. And I wondered if maybe he kept the card or just threw it in the front seat pocket. And then uh, several years later, I was in South Pacific Micronesia Truck Lagoon doing technical scooter free diving. 50-some fleets of the Japanese Navy were sunk there during World War II. And I'm doing breath hold, using a scooter, using an oxygenated mixture to go underwater for just shy six and a half minutes and scooter these wrecks in 200 feet. And I got this email from a friend who had worked on a project with James Cameron where he went to the deepest part of the ocean. And the email said, Kirk, answer your effing phone. It's James Cameron. (laughs) He wants to talk to you about Avatar. I had the best excuse ever. Sorry, can't, no phone, <laughs> technical scooter, freediving truck lagoon, which I know he, James Cameron would think was pretty cool. That's a great story. <laughs> right. Peter Kent, who was a stunt double for Arnold Schwarzenegger, 
has been on this podcast and worked with James Cameron on the set of the Terminator movies. The stunts, he said, were always bigger and better each time. Cameron, known for his epic movies, of course, like Aliens and Titanic and Terminator. When James Cameron was describing what he wanted you to do for the movie Avatar and your role in it, what was running through your mind? It's funny because when I saw the first Avatar, and as a diver, you see it, and you see the vegetation and the wildlife and the world that is Pandora. You see so many diving marine elements in it. Back then, I thought, wow, can you imagine if James Cameron did Avatar where we got to see Pandora underwater? And now here I am. I've gotten back from Truck Lagoon. It's a couple weeks later. I've been flown down to Malibu. I'm waiting in his living room in his ranch in Malibu. And he walks in and says, Kirk, James Cameron, we've met before, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then he, for two hours, he tells me about Avatar 2 and 3, and maybe there's going to be 4 and 5. And he tells me about the story arc of the sequels and how Avatar 2 is going to be these metakine. And I just remember, like, this is what I've been dreaming. All, this, is, this feels like reaching towards one of the final pinnacles of my career to be able to work in the movies, but to do it for James Cameron and a water movie, it was just, yeah, it was incredible. And to hear how he had thought so deep into how the Navi or now the Metakine, how they were going to be an adapted water species on Pandora and how he had already figured out some of the physiology and how it was all going to work. The problem they were having is how they were going to do performance capture underwater, how they were going to capture all the dotted suit performances where they couldn't have bubbles because bubbles in the water would mess up the system. And so I had said, well, I would train everyone in freediving and I would bring in technical freediving. Ultimately, two hours later, he was like, okay, you're our guy. About a month or six weeks later, I was on it. What I thought was going to be two months long ended up I'm still on it. Five and a half years later, we still have stuff to shoot and finish on three. So five and a half years from the time you're in the living room until the movie is actually out in the theaters? Yeah, basically. And who specifically were the actors you worked with on free diving techniques? It was the principal cast of Sigourney Weaver and Sam Worthington, Zoe Saldana from the first one. Then we had Kate Winslet. Cliff Curtis, Stephen Lang, who played Quaritch. Then there was the kids element, the family element. Then I had six kids that ranged from six to 16 years old. So the principal cast was six to 69 years old, Trinity to Sigourney Weaver, and then stunt people that I would train, and then the underwater camera team that I would train, and the grip divers. But when it was the cast, I'm not just training the cast, I'm actually training their character because some of their characters are supposed to be humans who don't have a lot of time in the water. Some of them are supposed to be Navi who've never been in the water. And some of them are supposed to be Metakayin who are literally born in the water. Some of my Metakayin people who are supposed to be born in the water, the cast member, they were hated water. They had phobias <laughs> of water. So how you approach that is multifaceted in the types of training and technique. But thankfully, James Cameron and John Landau, the producer of Avatar and Disney, really realized that to bring the realism, to make it jump out live on screen, that there was time that needed to be spent. So I got months and months to be able to train them and try and distill 54 years of my diving experience and distill it into them 
in different forms and fashions so that they had a bag full of diving tricks that if James Cameron said, I need you to do this, we'd already practiced it somehow. So I had to get in James Cameron's mind and say, what would he want this character possibly to do? And at some form and fashion and training, we've tried all the little things that he could possibly ask of us. How do you communicate with the actors and the stuntmen and the camera people underwater when you don't have any equipment? Is it all hand signals? Yeah, we use hand signals. And what you have to realize is we have these underwater hydrophones. So James Cameron or the second AD Maria or John Garvin, who was head of the Marine unit, they had all these underwater cameras. They could see what's going on. They could talk to us through this underwater hydrophone. Then we'd either come to the surface and discuss a complex scene and then go down and do what we need to do. Or if we needed to on breath, hold under the water, communicate, we would turn to an, a reference camera that's in the water and we would do hand signals and things like that and just try and translate it across. It became very effective. And when you work with a team that long, 12 hours a day, five to six days a week, sometimes 16 hours in a day when you're with principal cast, you start to really learn your own little languages. Can you describe the moment when what you had taught the actors and the technology that you had been watching come together and then you could see James Cameron's vision? That's interesting because, for example, with Sigourney, suddenly there was like last minute training I was going to do with Sigourney. So she'd come in and she'd be like, I just read a portion of the script and found out my character's going to do this. And we're trying to guess, okay, that sounds amazing. What would that action look like underwater? What do you think? What do we think Jim is going to want? So we'd go in and we'd try all of these variations of it. But you have to imagine we're in a dotted suit. We got helmets on with GoPros in front of our face. There's dots on her face. The underwater scene is just, it's like working in a Costco. It's three-inch pipe and boxes. But on the video screen, on the flat screen, you see the rendered version of what that's supposed to look like Pandora underwater. And so you run these scenes, and one take for one scene might be four minutes then to sit in the theater and you're watching and you're like, oh my God, I remember that scene. And to see it went from like Legos and Tinker Toys, the set underwater to suddenly there's Pandora underwater and there's the scene and how it integrated. It was really stunning and amazing to see it come to life. Can you explain how that technology works? You mentioned helmets and suits and you've got ping pong balls and all the rest of it. There's two things we did. There's performance capture, which we did in L.A., and then live capture or live action, which we did in New Zealand. So performance capture in L.A. is the actors, characters are Navi. They're the metakine of Pandora, the resident people. So they wear a wetsuit. The wetsuit has all these reflective dots on all the different joints. And these cameras that ring the tank that emit a UV light flash off these dots that are on the suit. The computer picks it up, sees the measurements of dot to dot, and realizes it, it's Kate Winslet. And then it applies her character on top of her. So now she becomes Ronal. You see her on the flat screen as Ronal, but underwater you see her as Kate with dots on her face. So what happens is we run a scene and all of these dotted suits are in there and all these cameras are picking up in 3D space where the character is moving. But the set in the tank is just blocks like little tinker toys that are a meter by two meter blocks with piping and all this stuff but that represents a rock or a plant or something 
So what they do is they create this virtual world in the computer with their character looking like the Metacaine character. Then they translate that into the real world in the tank and they just make sure that everything in 3D space lines up. So now the character can swim and is really swimming in real water. The real physics apply, but they then just put the virtual skin and the virtual world into it. You have to realize that for James Cameron, Avatar is in our reality. This isn't like DC Universe, Superman and Batman and all of that. People don't really fly, right? But Avatar takes place 150 some years into our future. Our real physics apply. So that meant that when someone was swimming, James Cameron wanted them swimming. It needed to look like they were really swimming versus someone sitting behind a computer thinking, this is what swimming looks like. It's really this incredible thing. And then now we're in New Zealand and we're doing live capture or the live action. So now it's a human, it's makeup, it's costumes, it's sets. And so we might be running a scene with Spider or Jack, the character, and he's a human boy, but we're running a scene matching something we shot two years earlier in L.A. So there's a metacaine in that scene, which we don't see because now we're in New Zealand, but we're trying to match it. So it really is movie wizardry. It's magical <laughs> how it all happens, but it just lends to the best experience for the viewer because it looks real and it's shot wet for wet. What, the underwater people diving? They were underwater diving. This isn't Aquaman. We're not hanging on strings with fans in our hair thinking we're underwater. So what you see is what you get. When Today in BC returns, Kirk Kroc talks about the Exploration Diving Society of British Columbia and the documentary The Cove. Get fast access to breaking news by signing up now to Black Press Media's free newsletters and stay informed with all the latest news delivered directly to your inbox. You'll have access on any device, so you never have to miss out again on the information you need to know. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. I'm Peter McCulley. Kirk, the underlying storyline in the movie, Avatar 2, The Way of Water, is the environment, specifically the ocean, and that's a topic that's near and dear to your heart. Absolutely, on a number of levels and a number of ways. In 2010, I was involved in the Oceanic Preservation Society, and we produced a documentary called The Cove, which uncovered the slaughter of dolphins in Japan, and it went on to win Best Feature Documentary at the time. In that multi-year journey of filming around the world, trying to find out the story, really we were shooting a documentary, it was going to be a half hour, maybe Discovery Channel, and we were trying to shoot this documentary about the health and the state of the oceans and the pressure they're under and what we need to mitigate disasters for it. And then we found this slaughter of dolphins that was still going on ultimately that's what it turned into. So I'm happy to say that I'm actually rejoining OPS, the Oceanic Preservation Society. We have a multi-year project that we're starting right now, probably going to have four to six expeditions a year around the world where over the next two to three years we'll be doing a shooting project. So I'm excited about that. And then also I've a year ago with a number of really good friends and really accomplished divers, we've started the EDSBC or the Exploration Diving Society of British Columbia, which is about exploration in our local marine waters. 
to see what's there, see the health and the state of it, and just to kind of open up adventure for divers again and find new dive sites. We've talked a lot about the movies and your diving experiences in the Cayman Islands, but there's years in between those. Can you share some of your more memorable experiences from your diving adventures? With OPS, some of the amazing things we did was humpback whales in Tonga or dolphins in the Bahamas and things like that. I had just recently, and this was with OPS, and this was when we were shooting another documentary. I worked on Racing Extinction, and we were in Tonga, and I was a brand new father. My daughter wasn't six months old, and I'm with a mother humpback and her calf. Her calf is about a week old. The thing is about three meters long, maybe four meters. It's mostly white still. I was just trying to shoot from afar and the calf would leave mum because they'd be at about 10 meters underwater and the calf is right under her chin. And every once in a while, the calf goes to the surface, takes a breath, comes down after playing on the surface a bit and then rests under mum's chin because she's really buoyant. And then all of a sudden she would leave and I was away. I was giving them lots of space and the calf would come over and swim right up to me and rub against me. And I'm trying to like keep my distance <laughs> off of it. And, and it's just super curious. And then every once in a while, mom would <laughs> sound off and the calf would go running back to mom and under the chin and then come up for a breath again and then get curious with me. And I saw this one time where the mom took the calf off her nose and rolled the calf on the surface, rolled the calf down her back and off her back tail. And I thought, oh my God, this is what I do with my daughter, right? We're on the ground and we're doing whatever. And I just thought it was, it was just such an amazing thing to see mother and her newborn and to feel that realization and recognize who was new. And that was really special. That gave an amazing appreciation for the environment and the ocean. Because you have to imagine, right, when you see Earth from afar, it looks blue. And why do we call it Earth when we're 73% water and ocean? We should call it ocean, not Earth. We know more about outer space than we really do in the deep oceans. So there's other projects that I'm going to be involved in and companies I'll be working with that will really use technology to enhance the opening and understanding and exploration of the whole of the ocean. And other things that I've done before, I've had some magical experiences when I was doing technical diving and I'd have nine scuba tanks going to 550 feet, just shy of 170 meters of depth and the water off the Cayman Islands diving along the sheer wall to that depth and the water being so clear I could watch a boat drive over top. But playing in this thing called the, the sponge zone or the wave notch where the Earth's oceans were 420 feet shallower than they are today, about 33,000 years ago. And as one of these great pulses of melts that would happen, the erosion would cut this notch out of the wall. And, and just to dive back into time and to do those dives was ultimately really amazing and something I hope to get back doing again soon. I'm sure you've been underwater off the coast of British Columbia, just about every great diving spot there is. Do you have a couple of favorites? First off, for over 25 years back in the day i've done dives on mixed gas into the 100 meter range here and and then into the shallow 40 and shallower meter range and around campbell river we have world-class diving it is absolutely spectacular in fact at one point one of our more well-known diving magazines internationally would rank bc as third best diving in the world and that's something that Jacques Cousteau at the time had said as well. 
It's just we have these unique waters. We're tidal. We have a lot of current. A lot of oxygen gets into the water. We've got kelp. We've got giant Pacific octopus. We've got humpbacks. We've got orca. We've got wolf eels, strawberry anemones, plumos anemones. It's just so rich and vibrant. And in the winter, when the visibility is the best, it's absolutely amazing diving. It's challenging diving. It's colder. It does have current, but that leads to such a rich environment to dive in. And with the EDSBC, their Exploration Diving Society, we've come across some absolutely spectacular sheer vertical walls just covered in sponge that's absolutely amazing. And this sponge is near prehistoric. It it looks and feels like it can be hundreds and hundreds of years old. And these things called bioherms, which a good friend of mine, Hamish Tweed in Vancouver, has been doing a lot of diving in house sound on them and doing a lot of research with them as well. The diving here is amazing. It's challenging, so learning how to do it properly and getting good training and then just being properly equipped makes all the difference. I'm a novice, obviously, so I'm going to ask you why is the water clearer in the wintertime? It's just there's less sunlight, and so you don't get the LJ growth that you would get in the summer. One of the things that's interesting is with EDSBC is we're trying to figure out what makes good dive sites. And so sometimes we know that south-facing walls, the right amount of current, but not too much that it scrapes the life off. Having some fresh water run runoff nearby also helps as well. So yeah, there's a lot of cool dives here. How does it feel for a kid from the prairies who loved the swimming pool to be looking for a suit to wear to the Oscars? <laughs> yeah, I would hope. I have no doubt it's going to win a lot of awards at the Oscars. Just technical achievement alone will be pretty amazing. I don't think I'll get that invite to the Oscars necessarily. I did get invited to the L.A. premiere, and I took my daughter, Kyla, and she worked on it. It was funny. Her friends didn't even know, and she did some work on it, doubling for Trinity, who plays Took in Avatar The Way of Water. So her and I went down and to watch her at the L.A. premiere of Avatar, like deer in headlights, just as I was. We're just in awe of the spectacular that Disney made it to be, and it was a lot of fun, and I was so proud to just be able to share that moment with her. I'd like to thank Kirk Kroc for being with us on this edition of Today in B.C., If you have suggestions or comments, send us a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google podcasts. 